Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Well, today we're going to be talking about the coup, the recent coup that took place in Niger. We're going to be talking about the situation in Syria and how it's been developing recently. And last but not least, we'll be talking about the big Russia-Africa summit that took place last week. All that and more, coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid-fire news. We have the U.S. government being caught coercing social media companies into censoring posts about content surrounding COVID. Big surprise. We'll see if anything comes of that. We have the Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu visiting North Korea, where he saw a major North Korean military parade. And it was also during that parade when North Koreans showed off their uh, their new drones and their new ICBMs. Very modern equipment. So, again, if they have hypersonic missiles, if that's true, then it, it really does just change the equation of who would win the war between the North and the South. Uh, beyond them having nukes, I mean, it's not too big of a stretch to say if they have hypersonic missiles, they can put the nukes on them. I'm sure a hypersonic missile would definitely have the thrust necessary to carry the weight of a nuclear warhead. Would they use them? I don't think so. I don't think North Korea is uh, that crazy. But they really do start to make one think of Prussia. You know, nobody thought of Prussia as the great power until they were. And then all of a sudden they had united Germany. Perhaps something similar may go down with North Korea. Time will tell. But it's very interesting how their military is able to be modern in some areas like this. And they're even able to make their own drones. They've been supplying some to Russia throughout the war. So I don't think they're as backwards as we have been told for so long. We have Antonio Guterres, the UN chief, calling for UN intervention in Niger. And we'll be talking about the the uh, coup that took place there, which is why he's calling for this intervention. But I wanted to take this point to really uh, drive home some of my opposition towards the UN. Because you see, the UN has been calling for, and this is, uh, I've sort of just noticed this, they've been very militant as of late, calling for military intervention in Ukraine. Mil they, they wanted peacekeepers to go into Burma when Burma had its coup. They want uh, there was riots in Haiti now. There are riots in uh, Haiti. The the UN wants to send troops in there as well. And then they, now they want to send troops in, in, into Niger. They want to send troops everywhere. They, they already have troops in Kosovo keeping Serbia out. They want troops everywhere. The, the militarization of this organization, this supranational organization that acts as though it has jurisdiction within literally every country on the face of the earth. This is the danger, or one of the dangers, of the UN's very existence, in my view, which is why I don't want America to be a part of it. No entity above our own nation 
should be above our own nation. I think we were right to stay out of the League of Nations. And I think we made a mistake in being a part of the UN. Because the UN Charter is a treaty. And at the very least for the United States, forget every other country. For the United States, if we sign a treaty that effectively is enforceable as though it was a part of the Constitution, because our Constitution says so. So if something would have passed the UN, you, you have a, a essentially a governing body that is signed down to by treaty. So that governing body, it's the things that it passes and the things that it does get to be treated as though they were constitutional law in the United States. So just from a, from a constitutional point of view in America, that we should not be a part of this entity. This is not what we were supposed to be. Our government is supposed to be up by and for the people, not the world's people, our people, not run by people who we ultimately don't elect. Now you could say you can make the argument. Well, yeah, we're a part. Of, we're all part of the same planet. We're America is not going to get the same say globally as it's going to get in its own country. Well, um, nobody in America got to consent to this, and honestly, it defeats the purpose of our independence. If I'm being frank, what? Why? Why have independence? Why have sovereignty as a country? Why leave the British Empire if we're just going to replace it with the UN? And the UN is an even bigger global entity than the British Empire was because everybody goes along with it. And now you see uh, there's it even has UN peacekeeping troops, which everyone thought was so benign and people still think it's benign. But now that you see these troops being uh, talked about being put here, Ukraine, being put there, more in Kosovo, being put over there in Haiti, then put over there in Niger, it's... A military occupation. It's developing a global military. It is global governance. And now that global governance is expanding like government always does. It's trying to use military force to assert its authority. Because if you can't assert your authority somewhere, what kind of a governing body are you? And this is the inevitable result of having a governing body. It will eventually try to assert its jurisdiction. And if its jurisdiction is the entire world, then who is to say that one day UN peacekeepers won't be deployed to the United States? Really think about that. But this was just uh, something I noticed. Like This guy is calling for military intervention literally everywhere. Now, perhaps that's just because he's American, you know. Americans are, the American government, I should say, is addicted to their intervention. But this guy's head of the UN which makes him all the more dangerous. And it demonstrates, at least for me, uh, so I can articulate it to you, it demonstrates the danger of this organization. I do not believe we should be a part of the UN, and I stand by that. But that's him. He's calling for UN uh, peacekeepers in Haiti and Niger uh, and Ukraine. And uh, <laughs> uh, But I'll, I'll leave it there. Just you know, keep that in the back of your mind. You, know, you might disagree with me. You might agree with me, but definitely something that i feel we should be on the lookout for we have the a u.s special representative uh meeting with the taliban delegation in qatar there was a meeting between america and qatar uh not not between america and qatar but between america and the islamic emirate of afghanistan that took place in qatar the diplomatic capital of the middle east 
And there, the Islamic Emirate asked for their frozen funds back. And will we give them to them? Uh, probably not until Trump's in office. So that's still a point of contention. I don't think that's going to happen again until a, a new administration, Trump, comes into office. In which case, we'll probably get a trade deal in exchange for it. The U.S., uh, in other news, has sent another billion dollars to Ukraine for social and humanitarian expenditures. So if we just translate that from um, bullshit to English, we can get uh, money laundering. A billion more dollars for money laundering is what we've given to Ukraine. Uh, (laughs) We have China and Pakistan signing six new agreements that build on the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor deal. Uh, Well, the agreement that... uh, essentially turns Pakistan into a, a de facto West Coast for China. And if I'm going to simplify it that way, it's not China colonizing Pakistan. Uh, but by having Pakistan as a partner in this, China gets to bypass, by way of this corridor, they get to bypass the Malacca Straits. And they just have to send their goods through Pakistan. Very smart and very beneficial for the Pakistan for the Pakistanis which is why they go along with it. We have Biden planning to, he plans to host South Korea, the South Korean and Japanese leaders in August for a summit meeting at Camp David. I believe this is going to be on the 18th, if I remember correctly. And this is likely in response to all the summit meetings and group meetings that's been happening between other organizations that eat the United States and the Europe don't necessarily get along with, like the OIC or the Arab League or the, the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement or BRICS or more recently, the Afri- the Russia-Africa Summit. And we'll talk about that later on in the episode. So this is appears, uh, at least on first glance, perhaps it's something different. But to me, it appears to be a, a means of saving face to go, hey, uh, don't just look over there. Look at what we're doing. We're doing big things, too. See, uh, America's having a, a summit with Japan and South Korea. Mm-hmm, yeah, see, we're, uh, the, we're doing big things in the West. We're not, but uh, <laughs> that's what it looks like. That's really what it looks like, uh, sort of a means of covering one's diplomatic ass in the face of the fact that no one really wants to meet with him. I mean, we were, we remember when he went to, we remember when he went to Saudi Arabia and then how the Saudis responded to Xi Jinping showing up, uh, what, uh, uh, just a couple of weeks later. And they give that man the red carpet treatment and, uh, the sickly King of Saudi Arabia gets up out of bed to go meet with Xi Jinping. And the only person that met Biden was the prince, the crown prince. So night and day, night and day. We we remember the the democracy summit. You remember the democracy summit? I'm sure you don't, but unfortunately, I do. <laughs> the 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 great democracy summit, uh, that that virtual meeting that Biden had between all these democracies. Brazil wasn't included, uh, or Russia, <laughs> or any other Middle Eastern nation. Now that I think about it, even though they all have parliaments. <clears throat> It was only the countries we like are invited to the democracy summit and how we're going to fight against, you know, authoritarian leaders, except we're going to exclude democracies from the process. It didn't go anywhere. 
probably don't have to tell you that much, considering that no one remembers that this summit even happened, this virtual summit. Nothing happened, nothing came of it, and it was ultimately a waste of time. But it, it looked cool, you know? It gave gave the news cycle something to talk about, and it certainly gave me something to talk about. But it the, the night and day disparity between the multipolar world and the Western liberal world order, it, it just grows in its contrast. Like I said before, when we were talking about why everyone wants to go to the BRICS, I was talking about this a few months ago, but when we were talking about how all those BRICS countries, well, all those countries were applying to become a part of the BRICS, we, I went over why. With the BRICS, you get China, you get, you get Russia. With China, you have manufacturing and economic development. With Russia, you have energy security. And if you're close enough, you even get military security. The, the Russians will actively intervene to stop coup attempts on your country, again, if you're in close enough proximity to Russia, because uh, the Russians can only go so far, you know. And the Chinese will help you build roads, bridges, canals. They'll help you build dams, like Ethiopia. You, you can bring electricity to millions upon millions of abjectly impoverished people. Like, who wouldn't want to be a part of that? And then you have the massive markets of China and India. You have the massive resource markets of Russia, Brazil. Uh, South Africa's there too, I guess. <laughs> but you have real tangible things that you can get with the BRICS, with the multipolar world. The BRICS would be the foundation of the multipolar world with Russia as its leader. And then when you see the G7, it's, oh, let's have talks about talks so that we can uh, agree about the need to have a dialogue about more talks. It's like, no one wants that. Uh, a, a dialogue to have more talks because it's important to have these conversations about talks. And it's like, okay, well, what are we going to do? Uh, talking is nice, but what are we going to do? Oh, we're doing nothing. It's no wonder why everyone wants to join the BRICS. Am I saying that? And this is not from somebody saying that America needs to join the BRICS either. I think we'll be perfectly fine on our own. All we have to do is cut the cord with all these corpses that are, we are shackled to. Uh, you know, all of Europe, Britain, Canada, and, and, and all of them. You know? I mean, hell, we can probably just annex Canada and then they'll go from being a liability to an asset, you know? Just clean the slate. Uh, get... We have all these 99-year uh, leases on these ports that the British gave us in, in exchange for 100 destroyers, which we could have bought, mind you. Uh, but, you know, FDR was being gay. <laughs> oh, I'm being so toxic on this episode. But uh, honestly, we have these 99-year leases that we, gay, that we got in 1940, 1941, with Britain, with the Atlantic Charter, that are going to expire in a few decades. Like, literally two, less than two, actually. And then, and then what? We're going to be the only continent in the world that still has European colonies. That, you know how much of an embarrassment that's going to be? For us, the country that made it a, a mission statement with the Monroe Doctrine to remove extra hemispheric powers from our hemisphere, to, remove, to stop Europeans from colonizing any further, and to remove them, the colonies that exist, to remove the Europeans that were still here from our hemisphere. You know how much of a L that is for uh, for us to be in this post-colonial period where we are the only continent 
that still has European colonies. That's an embarrassment. And that is a failure of strategic policy. And it again goes back to the fact that people really do not understand what a, what a US interest is. They think we have interests in the Middle East. No, we don't. They think we have interest in the Indo-Pacific region. They think we have interest in Ukraine. No, we need to be finishing the manifesting of our destiny. We need Canada and Greenland so that there are, we don't have a northern border. That's what we need to be doing. That way, nobody can threaten the United States except for one direction. As a matter of fact, we need Bermuda too. That island way off our east coast, we need that too. And then we're good. Then we're good because the only the only threat that can possibly attack us, the only threat that could possibly hit hurt us is going to be from the south. That's strategic policy. But we're not talking about that right now. We're not talking about the rightful annexation of Canada or the purchase of Greenland. Trump was talking about the purchase of Greenland, which is just one more reason why I like the guy and why we need him back so that we can get Greenland our rightful clay. But it's incredible uh, watching all this go down. You have, uh, how, how did I get over here? I was talking about the BRICS, wasn't I? And I ended up in a whole tangent about US interests. But it's no surprise why people would want to join the BRICS instead of, say, the G7. Uh, no one wants to sit there and talk forever. People want to do stuff. People want to take some actions, some tangible actions that have actual benefits to their country. And the multipolar world brings that. The G7, the G20 doesn't. Well, the G20 without the G7 is just the bricks. Uh, that's a famous clip from Scott Ritter, but it's true. And again, we don't even need to be a part of the bricks to benefit from the multipolar world. We just have to not be shackled to half a million corpses and America will thrive. We just have to, to not be, oh, we're gonna protect this country, no. We need to be focusing on domestic production and trade. And that's it. That's how we win. That's how we win for ourselves. It's not about winning by dogging on China, winning by dismantling Russia. It's about winning by doing well, being prosperous, having a strong, thriving economy where there's uh, ample, rich opportunities. That's how you win. You don't win by destroying someone else's country. You're just an asshole for doing that. But well, we're not focusing on that. The rest of the world is. And well, until we get Trump, I imagine that we won't be focusing on this. Although that does break the question, what happens when Trump can't run anymore? But uh, we're just gonna put that off. You know, we're just gonna not think about that until that we have to cross that bridge. Uh, but last but not least, we have China calling Taiwan a powder keg. We have Chen Binhua, a spokesman for the Taiwan Affairs Office of China, saying, quote, their actions, and he's talking about America, their actions are turning Taiwan into a powder keg and ammunition depot, aggravating the threat of war in the Taiwan Strait. So just a clean reminder for everyone out there who thinks otherwise, Taiwan is up next, but perhaps, perhaps not immediately next there the taiwan's on deck but perhaps they might not be next and we'll get into that in one of our stories but we'll we'll get into we'll get into that when we get into the meat of this episode in just a moment
Alrighty, let's get into the meat of today's episode. And we are going to start by talking about the coup in Niger, which I've recently learned is the uh, pronunciation for it. I always went with uh, Niger, but I guess Niger sounds better, rolls up the tongue. Uh, better than the <laughs> the other way you could say that country's name. But uh, <clears throat> uh, the Niger president, or the Niger president, Mohamed Bazoum, has been deposed by the military in a coup, as you may already know. The mass unrest that sprung up after this was, surprisingly, both in favor of the coup on one side and against the coup on the other. So it's not just anti-coup. In fact, from what I've seen, a, a majority, and again, this could just be the imagery in the videos skewing the perception of this, but from what I've seen is that most of the unrest has been spawned in favor of the coup. People have risen up in, in support of the coup which is a bit of a strange thing. I guess they're just really happy. Or again, it could just be the perception. Maybe they, they were whipped up and paid for by the military. Who knows? We'll get more information on this as it goes on. But since the coup happened, the military has shut down the country's borders. They've, it's been put on lockdown. And a number of things has, a number of things have transpired. I believe they have named uh, one of their officers as the leader of the country for the time being. Uh, I'll see if I can pull his name up while I'm uh, live, while I'm live on the air. But uh, the Niger military has warned against any foreign militants or any, any foreign interventions in the country, which is natural considering how prone to intervention uh, a lot of other countries happen to be. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, the United States. And in considering this part of the world, France. This is part of France's sort of unofficial empire that they've maintained because a lot of the countries in the region still use local denominations of the franc which is france's currency uh strangely even though the french use the they use the euro but I, they still control the currency the franc because it's it's their currency so they they get to control whether or not you have inflation or deflation in these countries which yeah, I don't know if I would be too happy with that. If I was, if I was a sovereign nation, which America is, I would at least expect my government to be the one responsible for the printing of my currency. I, you know, now that I think about it, how, how would, why would you consider? Why would you go along with letting other people? Uh, and I guess if the currency is stronger, then I guess that'll be a sound reason. But I'm just trying to think from the standpoint of other countries running your currency couldn't be me no wonder the colonies rebelled in 1775 no i mean we had we had an inflation crisis of our own during the war which all makes it all the more impressive that our dollar became as strong as it did by 1900 to go from rags to riches so fast really does make you think about the history of our lovely little nation but Back to the, the the topic at hand, Niger. Um, yeah, the military has come out and they've warned against any foreign interventions in the country, and they were very, very quaint. They were very prudent to do so because it, it didn't take long for calls for such an intervention to come about, uh, namely from France and either from and also from the United States and the UN. We talked about 
uh, Antonio Guterres calling for UN intervention in Niger. So these guys knew what, what was up. These guys knew what was up when they came to power. Uh, they've warned against this, that the new junta has proclaimed its favorable stance towards Russia. Uh, and this is also a sentiment that seems to be echoed by the pro-coup uh, writers, I should say, the, the unrest that is on the side of the coup that's sort of taken over the streets of the country. They are also seemingly pro-Russia as well. And since the proclaiming of this favorable stance towards Russia, the protests and the riots in the country have taken on a sort of anti-colonial flavor. And I say that because it didn't take long for them to suddenly shift towards being anti-French as well as pro-Russian. And I have uh, just pulled up the leader, General Abdurame, Abdurmane, there we go, Abdurmane Chiani. Abdurmane Chiani has been named head of the Presidential Guards Unit, and he is now the new de facto leader of Niger. So Abdurmane is the new leader of Niger for the time being under the military junta. But yeah, the protests have taken on not just a pro-Russian flavor, but an anti-French flavor as well with many of the people in the streets could apparently being heard chanting down with france and other anti-french slogans which uh sort of paired up very nicely and very conveniently with the rioters on sunday storming the french embassy prompting the french government to respond by stating that if any french citizens are harmed and they said military diplomats or civilians then France would respond rapidly. Now that's now that implies military force, because otherwise, how else are you going to respond to that? Because the French didn't the French did not respond diplomatically when the civil war broke out in Sudan. They sent the troops in to get the people out. So with this country here, Niger, if if French citizens are harmed and the French said they will respond rapidly, they're most likely talking about military force, especially given the history between France and Niger. So that's on, that was put on the table almost immediately when this happened. And again, goes back to my point earlier that the coup leaders, the, this military coup, they, were, they knew what they were on. When they said, then they warned against uh, foreign countries intervening here because they knew, again, how trigger happy a lot of countries were with the whole intervention thing. And France was one of them. But they responded specifically to the French saying that they would respond like this. The Niger military has, one, they placed a contingent of soldiers to guard the French embassy, right? So they, but they have also placed an export embargo of the country's uranium and gold on France. So France will no longer be getting uranium and gold from Niger until some sort of agreement is worked out between the two. And this is a massive deal for France because uh, France in particular, uh, they are famous for deriving 70% of their energy needs from nuclear power. 
and they import a lot of uranium from Niger. But France alone, France was not alone in threatening intervention in Niger. America has also threatened to impose sanctions. The UN, again, openly spoke about sending in peacekeeping forces, aka an armed intervention, and even a number of West African nations have threatened to respond if Mohamed Bazoum, the, the deposed president, is not reinstated. Uh, there was an emergency meeting of the ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States, which includes Benin, Cote d'Ivory, Burkina Faso, Liberia, Ghana, Cabo Verde, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Mali, Niger itself, Nigeria, Senegal, Togo, and Sierra Leone. Those are the countries in the ECOWAS. There was an emergency meeting held in Nigeria where they essentially drafted an ultimatum, or at least this is the story. We'll see if it ends up being confirmed or if it's just a good old, a good old dose of fake news thrown into the chaos. But essentially, they seem to have drafted an ultimatum saying that they would respond militarily if Bazoum was not reinstated within one week. So we'll see the result of this this week. Uh, so we'll either we'll be able to talk about it on the next episode or nothing will come of it. And we'll just say that. But lots of chaos, lots of uh, wrenches being thrown. And uh, the, the Niger military junta was not afraid to throw wrenches back. I mean, the uranium thing is really going to hurt France. Like, because think about the situation France is in, because they are in Europe. And Europe is already hurting for energy because they cut themselves off from Nord Stream. Well, they didn't cut themselves off from Nord Stream. Uh, we cut them off without their consent by blowing up the Nord Stream pipelines. So they don't get Russian gas from those pipelines. They can get it from the Yamal. They can get it from the pipelines going through Poland and through Ukraine. And eventually, I, I imagine that some of those will even be damaged as well. Or the deals will just run up since no one is going to be willing to renew them because the political pressure or they they've decided to stand with ukraine so even in spite of the political pressure i should say that even in spite of the political pressure for there to be cheap energy in europe the leaders of the european countries probably are not going to renew that deal unless they are just wholesale replaced with new people which is a possibility a lot of a lot of more right-wing parties are rising in Europe. So we'll see. We'll see. The, the Dutch farmers have, are already taking over the Netherlands. Georgia Maloney took over Italy. Oh, she has, she's, she's been a bit of a mixed bag in terms of the conservative policy. Uh, but you know what? That's not my country. And she hasn't withdrawn support from Ukraine either. So, you know. But it, I... We could very well see brand new faces in Europe that are willing to make peace with Russia, that are willing to have cheap Russian energy, and that are willing to let go of America in exchange for Russia, because they see where their actual interests lie. And it's not with an alliance with America, unless their goal is to fight Russia. Only the, the East Europeans who want the, the smoke with Russia want the alliance with America because they want to drag us into the war. But with the situation in Europe, the energy situation being really bad, they have to import from everywhere else, 
and they they got through last winter but because they don't have as much energy coming in from russia they're buying them from third parties who technically are under no obligation to sell to resell the oil the europeans now have a structural problem with energy and it's really eating into the industrial base especially in places like germany so what what happens now with france who's not only going to be feeling the energy crunch because they're on the opposite end of the continent from russia so the gas was already had to travel the farthest just to get to france but what happens now if in the event that they are not able to make a deal with niger what happens when the winter comes and those new those lovely nuclear power plants can't run i mean it doesn't take that much uranium to run a nuclear power plant so they they might be fine but we're talking months here and of course they, they can get it from other places let's not going to pretend that they can't but they get it from this place for a reason perhaps the price perhaps it's the quantity maybe the sudden shock of not having it for the time being even if they get a deal immediately after like within the next few weeks or a month or so the shock might still send really bad ripples through the french economy africa is fighting back and it's it's very interesting to watch i'll just say that much it's very interesting to watch it wasn't that long ago that i was speculating on a second scramble for africa but that scramble seems to be taking on a much more different tone the scramble is not for the exploit of the african resources the scramble appears to be for the development of africa rush and we'll get into russia in a minute but you have russia coming in you have china coming in the big boy india's getting in on the game of development projects in africa japan even is getting in they're they're much more on the down low they have their own essentially belt and road program going on in africa the scramble is for developing africa rather than for the exploitation of africa which uh no matter how you cut it, that, that beats the old scramble for Africa any way you, you want to look at it. So will Spain and Portugal get on, on it? I think that they will in time. It'll take them a minute, you know, but I think that they're definitely going to be in on that scramble. And Turkey will as well. Turkey has an alliance with Libya. If uh, And Turkey is going to be, if that's the only country that Turkey is a part of with the, the developments, well, that's still a contribution even if it's only for them to exploit the resources of the Eastern Mediterranean. The scramble for Africa is for the development of Africa, which might, although it, it, it does go, the, the question does arise, I should say, will it really penetrate the interior of Africa? Because the coastline, they're definitely going to be set. The coastlines are going to be set. Because especially the Eastern coast of Africa, the Eastern seaboard, because you have, that's where China, India, and, and Japan are coming from. Russia comes in from the northeast. But what about West Africa? What about Southwest Africa? What about South Africa itself? South Africa may be a BRICS member, but they're not exactly a, a heavy hitter. What happens there? Uh, and the, the East the East Africa is really going to be looking, really going to be looking pretty, especially once you factor in the, the East African economic community you know kenya tanzania 
uh, Uganda, Brunei, Rwanda, and Congo, and Congo, and South Sudan. Like, this is a, a very big block that has access to both coasts of Africa. All you need is a good a good rail line running from the the slim, but it's there the slim coastline that that uh Congo has the Democratic Republic of Congo has on the Atlantic. You run that to the Indian Ocean, boom, you like you're good to go. Like East Africa is really gonna get disproportionate amounts of this development and infrastructure and industry and by the growth of their own economies, they'll become even more vibrant trading partners for each other. And that's just going to create a, a very strong positive feedback loop, especially when you factor in the peace taking over the Middle East and the rise of the Islamic states. Uh, I talked about that in my episode about the rise of the Middle East, how they have the demographic structure to dominate the 21st century in a way that is largely overlooked. Everyone's, everyone's focusing on East Asia who has the same demographic problems as the West. The Middle East is going to be the big boy players of the 21st century. Or well, they're going to be the rising stars, I'll say that much. We can already see who a lot of the big boy players are. But if you combine the rising the Middle East with all this development pouring into Africa disproportionately into the eastern side, the Indian Ocean is going to be lit. <laughs> the Indian Ocean... And the East Mediterranean, the Middle East in general, it's going to be a magnificent place for trade and prosperity. Like, perhaps like nothing we've ever seen since, again, pre-Columbus expedition, pre-Spanish Inquisition. Like, we're going back to that era of time where the Middle East is where all the wealth is. The Middle East combined with East Africa. And India is going to get a dis is going to get a disproportionate share of that as well. One off their own ability to generate wealth due to their large population once they get their industry going, because uh, they'll have the riches of East Asia to tap into. Even with the the bad demographic structures that'll be hindering East Asian growth, but East Asia is very advanced already in terms of infrastructure and technology especially China, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan. India is going to be able to reap that from its east and tap the mark, the energy of the Middle East and the markets of Africa. India and East Africa are going to be some big ones. That entire, the entire western half of the Indian Ocean is going to be a massive center of trade, massive center of trade and prosperity and investment. But what, but what of West Africa? Is that going to sh is that wealth going to trickle down to West Africa? I'm not entirely sure. Like maybe it's going to make its way to South Africa. Maybe Brazil will will throw its hat in the race with a lot of West African countries. Maybe Spain and Portugal get in on it. Uh, but Spain and Portugal are minuscule <laughs> compared to the Middle East, Turkey, India, China, Japan, Russia. They just Look, the Iberians can do a good deal when they set their minds to it, but they the best they're going to get is Morocco, Algeria as large partners in that. They're not in Spain and Portugal by themselves are not industrializing all of West Africa. I'm just going to just going to 
put that out there right now. They're not in, they're not industrializing. They're not going to be doing massive infrastructure deals. They're, they're not going to turn West Africa into Atlantis by themselves. That, that, that's just not going to happen. And I don't know from maybe France will get in on Algeria. Maybe Italy will get in on Algeria, Libya, and Egypt. Maybe Greece will get in on in Egypt. They're, they're already sort of partnering up as a sort of counterbalance to Turkey and Libya. But again, you, you have relatively minor players going for West Africa. But the further to the east of Africa you get, you get more overlap between the Europeans and the major players, Russia, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Syria. Uh, I, I think Syria is going to be a, a big boy player as well once they finish rebuilding. The, the, uh, the Saudis, even if Israel decides to have a change of heart and they get in on this. Uh, but East Africa is going to be reaping a disproportionate amount of all this wealth and investment just by proximity. Because that's, if you look at a map, it's easy to see why. Every major investing country is going to be coming from the East. Russia's in the Northeast. Turkey's to the Northeast. Saudi Arabia is to the Northeast. Iran is to the Northeast. India's to the east, China's even further to the east, Japan is even farther to the east. And then, of course, the East African Federation slash East African community, they are, I mean, it's in the name, they're in the east. And Ethiopia is one of the most prosperous African nations anyway, and where are they? They're in the east, they're in the Horn of Africa. It's, and, and Egypt has the Suez Canal. Where are they? They're in the east. All the heavy hitters in Africa are going to be in the East, and all the development is all pouring into these countries. Like, I really, I see a massive disparity being set up that will leave West Africa. West Africa is going to do all right. I mean, it's going to, it, some of that wealth is going to trickle down to them. Just a massively disproportionate share is going to go to East Africa. Like, it could be the it, we could see the difference between West Europe, Western Europe, and Eastern Europe circa the eighteen hundreds. Like that, that could be the difference we're going to be looking at. Where you have, where you go from having paved roads to dirt roads, industry to cottage and guild. Like it might actually be that night and day by the end of this century, with all this investment and infrastructure and economic forces at play, demographic and market. We're looking at a massive transformation of Africa. The, the scramble for Africa did not take on the shape that I thought it was when I speculated on it at first. And you know what? It's a good thing it didn't take on that shape. It's, it's a lot better for the Africans this way. And it does make things a lot more interesting to talk about. And where's Niger's place on this? Well, in a world that moves towards nuclear power, which eventually the African states are going to, I don't think everyone's going to want to stay addicted to oil, especially if, because history is history. There's going to be a moment in time where some African country or some number of African countries are going to feel like they got screwed over by OPEC because OPEC did a production cut during a time when it was already, when these countries were already hurting. Now, what those countries end up being in the end, I don't know. But if something like that happens and it's, it, it's bound to happen at some point where someone feels that they got wrong. They're going to start looking for alternatives and nuclear power is going to be a readily available one. 
which might carve a place for Niger and other countries out for the supply of uranium and other nuclear materials. But yeah, we're looking at uh, not just a revolution in Niger. We're looking at a revolution in Africa all together. Uh, and the more you look at it, the more you start to see that the Europeans, as they cut themselves off through sanctions and as they get cut off in return, because you know, the rest of the world is standing up for itself a little bit more. As the Europeans get both cut themselves off and get cut off, from trade and partnerships with the rest of the world, we're going to start really going back to that pre-Columbian geopolitical order, where it is the East and the Middle East that does well. And this time the Africans are gonna be in on that as well, instead of a handful of city states and kingdoms. A lot of East Africa, the I believe the entire Eastern half of Africa is gonna be in on the take and the West, minus the United States and, and minus Russia, the West is, well, they're going to fall behind. And they're going to be the backwater. Europe is going to go back to being the backwater relative to the, rich, the riches and the dynamic markets of the East. It's going to be the difference between Greece and the Persian Empire between Greece and India, between Greece and China. Like, it's crazy to think that after all this time, after all this progress, that we end up going back to that. But I suppose when the, the, the playing field is level, the Europeans just fall off. And it's not like they're going to be poor. I'm not saying that they're poor. But the size of the country and the size of the populations are... Once you start to get on a level playing field, it's just going to be disproportionately in favor of the Middle East and the East, as it traditionally has been. The Europeans got a, a few hundred years. They got a, a few centuries to themselves with a, a, just a, a, a real breakout with the scientific and industrial revolutions combined with, I suppose, the political revolutions of the French Revolution, where you got liberalism, real liberalism taking control of the continent freedom combined with market freedom and uh, and free enterprise and industry and they just had this massive growth where the rest of the world really lagged behind N not in population but the rest of the world lagged behind economically and in development and the colonial systems that the europeans set up uh may attempted to keep it that way but in the in this world in this multipolar world where the the playing field is going to be a, a lot more level like the difference between the french and the algerians is not what it used to be in 1860 or or in 1850 or in 1820 for that matter where the europeans have guns and the other guys don't that difference isn't there anymore and the same is starting to be true for the economies at large and so as we get to a, a more even footing for everybody the natural inclination is going to be that the places with the larger populations who are more proximate to more trading partners are going to do well and that's going to benefit the middle east that's going to benefit india that's going to benefit china that's going to benefit east asia and it, and as a proxy it's going to benefit east africa 
who it's not going to benefit as much is Europe. The United States, well, the United States didn't exist in the pre-Columbian era, so we will get a unique view of what that world looks like in a world that has a United States and a Brazil and a Mexico. So that'll be interesting to watch. Uh, very interesting indeed. But now we'll get into the second topic of today's episode, which is the situation in Syria. Uh, we have the Russian Air Force operating in Syria, which has been taking down a number of American drones. They haven't been shooting them down. Um, if you remember when that, that Reaper drone that the United States had over the Black Sea, when it got really close to Crimea, and then a Russian jet sort of came by and dropped some uh, some of its fuel onto the drone, and the drone went down. That's what the Russians have been doing here. And they've been downing American drones like crazy. And it's, it, it really says a lot, you know, that we pay tens of millions of dollars for equipment that it gets peed on in mid-flight, and it dies. It, it, it says a lot that that is the status of our military. But I'm not even going to get into that right now. Because uh, I could get into that any other day of the week. And I could go for like an extra 30 minutes just talking about how bad it's become. But what I'm talking about today is the situation in Syria. Because starting with the Russians taking down our drones, working in, tangent, in tandem, I should say, with the Syrian army, you have the Syrian army backed by Iranian militias and as well as Russian troops uh, move, making gains in the countryside. And now they're starting to advance into the, the areas occupied by the United States. They're not going after the bases directly. They're sort of moving around our bases and taking the countryside, the countryside. And while they're doing this, you have Assad making major diplomatic plays with Iran, Arabia, Russia, and the Arab League, where they've been readmitted to the Arab League, where they've, they're making deals with Russia, they're making deals with Arabia or, or that Arabia, ugh, Arabia has normalized relations with Assad. Iran has always been backing Assad. And even Turkey is trying to uh, make diplomatic overtures to Assad because they see that the Assad government, the legitimate government of Syria, is winning the civil war. And it's really just coming together for this this confluation of forces that are going to end the war. It's going to end the war and it's going to end it in a way that is rather definitive. Like rather than some ambiguous, oh, is the war over? Or we, we still have some fighting here or there. It looks like it's going to be a rather decisive conclusion to this really long war. And it's, it's been one hell of a struggle for Assad. I'll give him that. But he's, He's fought on, well, he hasn't fought on the battlefield, but he's led the fight on the battlefield. He's led the fight in the diplomatic front, even when all of his neighbors, minus Iran and Russia, were basically jumping him by backing up every group that wasn't the government. He, through diplomacy, by talking to countries he didn't like, by talking to countries that were actively seeking to overthrow him, you know, real diplomacy, he has won back the support of the Arabians. One, he maintained his alliances with the two most important countries in that partnership, Iran and Russia, that helped him win, that helped feed 
and keep his army supplied as they were fighting with ISIS, as they were fighting with the Kurds, as they were fighting with all the other rebel groups. And now it, it all comes down to this, where we are in a position where we can see the end in sight, and they are now moving into the territories occupied by American troops. Now, America has responded to all this pressure being put on by Syria, and it's 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 offensive. Syria is mounting an offensive diplomatically and militarily. And America has responded to the pressure that that offensive has been putting on our troops by sending more troops to Syria and, and more fighter jets to Syria as well. We have about uh, officially we have a thousand, so it's probably like fifteen hundred or more. Uh, even though we were supposed to be out, and we were supposed to be out, mind you, Trump ordered the withdrawal of these troops. They went behind his back to keep them there. And then you had that House vote back in, I believe, March to issue a war powers resolution on to withdraw our troops. And two thirds of Congress voted against that measure. So two thirds of Congress voted directly saying to keep the troops in Syria. So it's not some ambiguous, oh, we didn't know about it. Oh, no, no, they're on the record now. Because precisely because the MAGA Republicans forced the vote. They forced the issue. And now we can point fingers when what's about to transpire goes down. Because it's it's looking like we're about to take one hell of an L. Like, you have this... And I say that, I say that because even with the, the additional troops we're sending to Syria, even with these fighter jets, it's beginning to look more and more like a repeat of the way our war in Afghanistan ended. And that is a rapid advance by Syria taking territory in the countryside. They're probably going to start seizing back control of the border crossings. And then steadily, once they've essentially encircled their entire country and all the borders of the country, they're going to start moving inwards towards where the U.S. troops are, where we're occupying their arable land and their oil. Once they've occupied all the the countryside surrounding that and the borders, they're going to start moving inward, and that's going to put pressure on our troops. But the big difference here being that while Afghanistan was fighting by itself, uh, Syria is not. Syria is fighting with allies. They're fighting with Russia. They're fighting alongside Iran. And they have gained the diplomatic backing of Saudi Arabia and even of Turkey, although they... Assad hasn't spoken to Erdogan yet. He doesn't want to, apparently. Understandably, <laughs> I mean, the, the Turks did try to overthrow him. And I, I suppose having to deal with the Saudis is one thing, but he really didn't want to talk to the Turks. So he's, it, as he's making his advances, it, they're, they're not alone. They have allies, and their allies grow by the day. They've been readmitted into the Arab League. So that's one major difference between Syria and Afghanistan. The other difference being that Syria is a relatively flat country compared to the mountainous Afghanistan. Uh, uh, Afghan Afghanistan is infamous for its mountains and its ability to fight in the mountains. Why we thought invading them was a good idea? Uh, ask the money launderers. But that's the second difference. The first difference being that Syria is not alone. They have allies. The second difference being that Syria is flat. They're not a mountainous country like Afghanistan. 
And the third key difference here is that the U.S. is not preparing a withdrawal like we were with Afghanistan. It, so it's looking like this work, our troops are going to get encircled by these maneuvers. And then they're essentially going to be put under siege in their bases by the Syrian army, who will have recaptured the countryside. And that's a, a diplomatic embarrassment. That is a catastrophe from a, a, a PR point of view. It won't, it won't be a real catastrophe unless Americans start getting shot at, which they might. I mean, it's a war zone. They might get shot at because just by proxy to the armed rebel groups that we've been supporting, that the Syrian army is going to be shooting at when they start moving into the territories that we're occupying. But just from an optics point of view, if our soldiers are hemmed into their bases by the Syrian army, what what's that going to say about our military? It doesn't say anything good. And of course, I imagine that when this happens, people are going to draw all the wrong conclusions. Oh, what does this say to our allies? Oh, what does this say to China? We need to be more, t- we need to reaffirm our commitment to our allies. We need to be really tough on China to let them know that, hey, we're still going to be, you know, all the wrong conclusions are going to be drawn from that. But it's looking like we're going to be forced into a situation where we have to leave. And all in all, that is a good thing. That is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. That is a good thing. But make no mistake, it's an L. It's looking like the U.S. is about to be faced with back-to-back-to-back-to-back L's, straight L's. Starting, We're starting the L train with Afghanistan, right? We can go back to Vietnam if you want, but just starting the L train with Afghanistan, then we, we thought Ukraine was going to be the next stop, but no, it, it could be Syria. It looks like we're pulling into the, to Syria first to pick up our next L before the train leaves the station for Ukraine. And either Taiwan or Israel will be the end of the line with all the the tensions flaring up between Israel and Palestine and the Arab League now speaking out against Israel, where before a lot of them were content to be silent and giving comments and remarks here or there, the sentiment seems to be hardening in favor of Palestine and against Israel within the region. Not not just on a passive, oh yeah, we, we support the Palestinians and their struggle, but more of a Israel needs to stop type sentiment, which is a major difference. Now, will that difference escalate to the point of an armed intervention against Israel? Or, or say, a, a UN intervention, a, a multinational intervention led by the Arab League or the, o, the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation? Who knows? But it, it's a possibility that we could see the position in our position in Israel overthrown even before the Taiwan War, just as it's possible that we might see we might take our L in Syria before we take our L in Ukraine, which are are two conflicts that I've talked about in the background that I didn't expect to get resolved before the other major ones, Ukraine and Taiwan. And I think the Korean peninsula might also be gearing up to go as well. I talked about how I, that American soldier and, and last week's episode, we talked about the defection. I talked about how I felt that there, there's a strong part of me that feels that this is just a provocation made by our government or that our government was using this f- as a provocation for war, 
war with North Korea and that that flashpoint, which I'm I've routinely brought up as a flashpoint because it's there. That one could pop up before Taiwan or it could pop up at the same time as Taiwan or the flashpoint in the Koreas might instigate war between us and China over Taiwan. And that's the problem with having all these alliances. It's a half a million trip wires and our government is willingly tripping over the wire to, to start a war. But uh, we can't win the wars. The, the biggest problem isn't even that we're trying to start the war. It's that we can't win them. We can't even, there's no justification for this. We're about to take back to back to back to back L's, Afghanistan, Syria, Ukraine or Israel, take your pick, and then Taiwan and South Korea. Just a string of L's across the board. And it's looking like we're about to pull into, the. it, look, it looks like the train, the L train is about to pull into Syria first. So we can take up our, our next L and move on to Ukraine. And Ukraine, Ukraine by itself is going to be one hell of a humiliation. Uh, actually, no, I think about it. All these are going to be humi- all these are going to be these massive humiliations because we were in Syria for how long? Their civil war started in what twenty fourteen, almost ten years of war. Almost ten years of war. Just to get an L, like you know, trash. <laughs> Do you know how trash you have to be to be involved in a war for ten years just to take a L? Like, what is this? Afghanistan, twenty years for an L. Hell, we we might wake up one day and find that we've been kicked out of Iraq. Uh, twenty-one years, twenty-two years just to take an L. Ukraine. We gave everything we had, everything the Europeans had, and then we we begged on wounded knee for the South Koreans to give us some of what they had, and we still lost. Well, that's an L. Oops, we lost. We lost in Taiwan. We lost uh, how many ships in the Pacific Fleet? Who knows? I don't even want to know the number. I really don't. I don't. The war is unnecessary. But I think we're going to find out soon. Oops, we lost South Korea too. And now there's unification. Oh my goodness. You have any idea how how embarrassing that's going to be? For the, the North Koreans to just sit there and flex on. After all the shit that we've talked about the, Europe- about the Europeans. About the North Koreans. Every time you hear any news about North Korea, it's that they are the most backward society on the face of the earth, they treat North Korea worse than they treat Afghanistan. Imagine how, imagine the cope, the the amount of cope they're going to come from watching North Korea do a, a million military parades celebrating the unification of Korea. Oh my goodness, bro. That's going to be one. Uh, look, all these may end up being good things in the end. I think Korean unification is a good thing. Chinese unification is a good thing. I think us getting out of Syria and out of Afghanistan is a good thing. I don't think we should be supporting Israel anyway. Maybe they deserve to get booted 
for what they're doing to Palestine. I just don't think we need to be involved. But because we are involved in all these places and we're involved on losing sides in all these places, uh, I guess you could throw Ukraine into that as well. Every time, every time these conflicts get resolved with the other side winning, that's an L that's a humiliation for us and an embarrassment for us and embarrassments that will stick. So it, while it's going to be very interesting for me to watch and to commentate on it with you guys, uh, let's sort of, take stock of the picture here which is that we are in fact taking l's and we cannot run away from those l's we can only we can only accept them we can only accept the l we cannot run from it but it's crazy i did not see syria on deck i like even though we've been talking about how the war in syria has been coming to a close this entire time i was not expecting that the war in Syria would close before Ukraine. I was not expecting that the war would come to a close before Taiwan. I I just wasn't expecting it. Like I knew it was uh, it was coming. We could all see it. Those of us who had our eyes open, and thankfully for me, I have a lot of sources who have their eyes open. But this was fast. The, the history has just been moving really, really quickly. Like, uh. The Russia-Africa summit, the, the situation in Syria, and of course, the the coup in Niger, and the riots in Haiti, like so much is happening, and oh my goodness, next year is an election year too, for a lot of countries in the West, it's it's gonna get wild, it's gonna get really wild. History's if you think history's moving fast now, just wait till next year. Just wait till next year. You have half a million indictments against Trump. You have corruption scandal after corruption scandal with Biden. It, it and then you have the Europeans who are going to go through another winter. It, a lot of stuff is moving fast. You have the BRICS currency in the wings. It looks like they, it might come online in, say, 2025. That's one of the numbers I've heard, 2025. But history is moving at this breakneck pace and it's moving in a way that you just i just couldn't predict but you know what that's why i like what i do always something to talk about but we'll get into our you know let's get into our next topic and lastly but not leastly our next topic and our last topic is the russia africa summit a delegation of African leaders met with Russian President Vladimir Putin in the city of St. Petersburg, Russia. And when I say a delegation, I mean that every African nation sent delegates and 17 African heads of state attended in person. So this is one hell of a summit, a very, very big summit. Uh, it, not that long ago, Russia held, held a, a smaller summit with a smaller African delegation. Uh, it was Russia and Africa in a multipolar world. And sort of this summit builds off of that. And it's, again, this is a really big and really consequential summit. And it sets the tone for what we can expect moving forward. And this is this event here is why... Uh, this combined with the coup in Niger is the reason why I've went on that tangent about the, the new scramble for Africa. 
and the 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 very different shape it's taking than I thought it was going to take when I first speculated on it in the early early days of the podcast. And again, it's a it's a better shape. It's a better direction. Way better than getting colonized again. Uh, and in fact, you might we might see some really major powers pop up in Africa as a result of the new way in which the scramble for Africa is taking place, and Russia and China are at the forefront of that. But uh, as we can see with this massive, del- I mean, it's it's a feat. It, it's a feat to pull off to get every African country to send a delegation to your summit about Africa. Because the U- when Blinken goes to Africa, the heads of state are not lining up to meet Blinken. <laughs> They're not sending delegations to go meet Blinken. They... They do not care about that nigga at all. <laughs> they, they do not care about that dude. They, he is inconsequential. And the same can be said when the EU goes to Africa. No one's lining up to meet Schultz or Ursula von der Leyen or Josef Borrell. All these, these C and D tier F list actors on the global stage no one's eager to meet these people. And yet when Sergei Lavrov goes, everyone wants to see him. When Putin invites them to come to Russia, every literally every country in Africa has showed up to this summit. And I just really want to drive that home because you don't get that unless you have popular buy-in, not just on the part of the, the people in Africa, but on the part of the governments. And it's considering how big and diverse of a continent uh, Africa is geographically, politically, etc., even religiously, it's an insane feat to get every single one of them to either send a delegation or, in the case of 17 of them, for their heads of state to show up in person for this summit. Now, what was discussed uh, was a number of things. One that Putin announced Russia would be forgiving over $23 billion in African debts owed to Russia. So a major debt forgiveness program that's that is winning them friends. That's winning them a lot of friends. Russia will also be engaging in economic energy and industrial development assistance in Africa. That's one of the, the big takeaways I got from this, uh, what was going on there. And this is going to be complete with educational assistance meant to help train African workers in the skills that they need to develop their own resources and their own infrastructure and build their and help maintain and build and grow their own manufacturing and industrial bases. Like, uh, if I had to break it down in layman's terms, essentially what Russia has proposed in this summit, what they announced in this summit, I should say, is a skills and energy and an education oriented belt and road initiative. That's that's going to be the baseline of what is essentially going to be the Russian belt and road initiative here, where they're going to be pro- providing the education, they're going to be building power plants, uh, they're going to and they're going to be tr- doing skill training. And because that that's what the Russians are doing here. Because right off the bat, you're going to have a lot of people, a lot of these other commentators talking about how Russia and China are competing for Africa, uh, but China's the big player. They're the big winner. Well, when you look at what the Russians are doing, it's quite symbiotic. 
it's very symbiotic. In fact, with the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, because China's building the roads, the bridges, the rails, the tunnels, the train stations, the ports, the airports, the refineries, and the factories. And then Russia comes in, and they're going to be building the power plants, the energy necessary to make all of that happen. The Russians are going to come in building the power plants, including nuclear ones, right? But on top of that, Russia is going to be training the Africans on how to operate the factories, how to operate the refineries, and how to speculate for and extract their own resources, how to maintain the roads, how to build the roads, how to, how to maintain the roads, the bridges, the tunnels, the rails, and the ports. And ultimately, the Chinese and the Russians are going to work together to teach them, the Africans on how to build these things themselves. These two projects will combine to create full spectrum economies in African countries. And that that is, you know, economies that have a little bit of everything going on, rather than being wholly dependent on, say, the sale of a single resource, you know, uh, a, a one-trick pony economy. Like, think of how the South in America was dependent on cotton, King Cotton, or how Arabia today is so heavily dependent on oil which is part of the reason why they took that massive trade deal with China back in, was it 2022 or 2021? I think it was 2021 where they had that massive deal with China. Or no, no. It, or was it when Xi went uh, literally just a few months ago, when right after, right on the heels of Biden getting down on wounded knee and asking the, the Arabians not to raise the price of oil? China in Arabia, in wh whichever year it was, I'm I'm blanking right now. I'm blanking. You know, uh, they agreed to that massive energy infrastructure and industrial development deal, where the Chinese were going to help Arabia with their energy, with their industrial build out, both in terms of green energy, in terms of the production of uh, uh, other tools and equipment. And that was huge for Arabia because they've been trying to build a full spectrum economy that is not so heavily dependent on oil sales. And of course, that's what every country should strive to be able to do. Iran has that, which is why even though they, their oil energy sector has been sort of crippled before the Chinese came in and single-handedly revived it with their own oil demand, Iran had a full spectrum economy. They, they had a little bit of everything going on, which is why we can't sanction them. Russia has a full spectrum economy. They have a little bit of everything going on. And because these economies are based in manufacturing and based in real physical production, sanctions can only do so much to these countries, which is why they can sit there. Uh, I'm talking about Russia and Iran, of course, which is why they can sit there under sanctions for years and years and decades uh, and just continue existing and for their economies to continue growing. That's what we're seeing being built, or at least that's the ambition for what's going to be built in Africa, which would effectively give Africa complete and total independence from whatever Western European or American busybody that wants to cancel them. Oh, you, you banned gay people. We're going to sanction you. <laughs> I'm, of course, referring to Uganda there. Oh, you, you said something we don't like. We're going to sanction you. 
oh, you you had a, a military coup because your uh, your old government was corrupt, but we like your old government. We're going to sanction you. Oh, you don't stand with Ukraine. We're going to sanction you. You have you have Wagner mercenaries in your country. We're going to sanction you. Again, nobody likes being canceled. Nobody wants to have to deal with some busybody telling them what they can and can't do with their own country. And so it's no surprise that they have all signed on to what's happening right here with the Belt and Road and with Russia's partner. This is definitely, this is, make no mistake, this is a partner program to the Belt and Road. It can operate separately on its own, but it's so symbiotic with the Belt and Road that there's no way that it's not meant to be a partner program to the Belt and Road. This is Russia's ticket in. And they're gonna ride that. They're gonna ride the the roller coaster of the Belt and Road all the way to the top, and then they're gonna enjoy the slide down. Like these two programs together are gonna turn Africa into an unsanctionable continent of full spectrum economies that are capable of mine of extracting, develop, developing, and refining their own resources all the way from the point of extraction to finished goods. And of course they'll they'll sell some raw materials, you know. There there there's a market for that. But the the birth of a manufacturing sector in Africa is going to turn Africa into a massive continent, a massive market for trade because as countries become wealthier, their their value as a market increases which is why shrinking markets theory or the the fixed pie theory the 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 zero-sum game theory of trade doesn't work because if you have mutually beneficial deals where both economies grow if your economy is larger then you can do more trade and if the, the person you're trading with if their economy gets larger too well, you can you have more business opportunity. You have more opportunities between each other. And hell, you can do trade with other countries. And if those other countries have their economies grow at the same time, it's a multiplier effect. Zero sum trade doesn't exist in a world where you have growing economies. Now, we might see something different with a lot of the demographic declines going on in the developed world uh, in Europe and in Asia. But with the Middle East and Africa on the rise, we could see a self-contained system essentially carve itself out in the world. But back to Russia and China. Russia is gearing up to make Africa Again, and this is in tandem with the Belt and Road. These are symbiotic partner programs. They're making Africa into an unsanctionable continent. And since Russia is already an unsanctionable country, of course they're going to go along. Russia has paved the way. If you if you are tired, it's it's they basically gave them a sales pitch. It's like, are you tired of being sanctioned by the West? Well... Are you tired of those long nights staying up wondering if your economy was still going to function in the morning? Well, fear no more because we have our magical economic adhesive enhancer adhesive. You just take this pill and suddenly you become 
unsanctionable. Like, the Russians essentially gave them one hell of a marketing pitch that was too good to turn down. Africa is going to become unsanctionable. Russia, as an unsanctionable country, is paving the way for every other country to become unsanctionable as well. And that combined with them working together with the BRICS to overthrow the dollar as the world's reserve currency with a gold-backed settlement currency, that, that's what it looks like it's shaping up to be. It's, a, it's not necessarily that you're going to be um, buying a, a cup of coffee with the BRICS currency. And again, they need a name. Uh, we, can't, we can't just go on calling it the BRICS currency. We need a name, you know. But you're not going to be buying a cup of coffee with that. But if you need to move your currency, if you need to swap, say, Indian rupees for Chinese yuan, well, you can do that with the BRICS currency as the, the, the settlement. So it's denominated in the BRICS currency rather than in the dollar, which means that your economic system and your trade is completely independent of the dollar, completely independent of whatever the United States says or desires, which means that your foreign policy and your domestic policy can be completely independent of whatever the United States says, unless you live by America, of course. You always got to take into account good old geography. But that's what we're looking at. And if Russia's unsanctionable, and all of Russia's trade partners gradually shift towards being unsanctionable, then what does that mean? When Russia's trade partners are 80% of the world's population? It means that 80% of the world's population is unsanctionable, which defeats the purpose of sanctions. The sanctions become a, a meaningless institution in that world. And that's even in a world where the dollar remains the, the reserve currency, which it's not going to be. It's, it's going to be replaced with the BRICS settlement currency, not the Chinese yuan. The Chinese, from my understanding, really don't want it. They, they're, they're fine with their currency as it is. But this is a, a massive deal. Uh, I mean, the Belt and Road has already been having massive inroads in Africa, and the Japanese and the Indians are sort of catching on to the Belt and Road. But with this Russian partner program to the Belt and Road, it's going to turn Africa into an economic powerhouse. Which, again, when we look at the map, this development seems destined to disproportionately benefit East Africa. I'm just saying it right off the rip. The strip of coast running from Egypt down to Mozambique, maybe South Africa, maybe Madagascar, but Egypt to Mozambique is going to be where it's at. That's going to be the heart of African industry, finance, economy. I can just see it now, especially since you have the Nile over there. Uh, that, that's where all the big city-states of Africa were to begin with. It was in the East because they had access to the Arabs and to India and to Asia. It, this is going to, I feel, disproportionately benefit the countries of West, uh, not West, of East Africa. And it, it just is a matter of Will it trickle to West Africa? But this is a major deal. And it's like, I just can't stress it enough. It's, it's such a game changer. And it really does demonstrate what I've been saying, which is that Russia is the leader of the multipolar world. 
they're not some some backwater junior partner to the real threat china no china's in the background and they're content to being in the background russia's leading this transition and like the two leg like two legs in a relay race they're going to run towards the finish line china and russia they're going to run they will run towards the finish line and that finish line is the end of the American-led liberal world order, complete with its rules-based international order. And it's the beginning of the multipolar world order where nations are sovereign. Like this, the underestimation of Russia really has to stop. Like it's getting out of hand. It's, it's so bad and it's so ingrained that it seems subconscious. Even among the people that believe Russia is going to win the war in Ukraine, what I've noticed, and I was just out, I was out driving, doing work, and it, it sort of hit me how underappreciated of a possibility it is that Russia just wins the war. Like you have the the pro-Ukraine side doesn't even want to envision that the, Russia winning the war is just uh, the worst case scenario for them. And they don't even think it's going to happen. They think that Ukraine's going to win. We just have to commit more, more money, more weapons to Ukraine, and Ukraine can win. And it's a moral indictment on our character if we don't commit to Ukraine. And it's a moral indictment on the world if Russia wins. That's how the, the pro-Ukraine side, generally speaking, views the war. In a very hyper-moralistic way that sees Russia winning as an absolute evil that must be prevented at all costs. Because World War II. But the pro, but even the pro, the pro Russia slash Russia is going to win side of the, the Ukraine war argument, they're focused on the day to day happenings in the war. They're focused on the, on the events on the ground in a way that the pro Ukraine side really isn't. They're looking at the failure of the Ukrainian offensives. They're looking at when Russia does a withdrawal. They're, they were look, they were in the trenches metaphorically in the Battle of Bakhmut, talking about. Uh, the progressions and how Russia was slowly and steadily taking the city. They were the ones talking about Mariupol. They are the ones talking about the Azov battalion and the Nazis in Ukraine. And they're the ones who are talking about how they, the Ukrainians, if they want to still have a country, if the, the Americans and the Europeans want to save face, you need a negotiated settlement. Because Russia's going to win the war. You can't go on with these rates of loss where you're losing uh, 5, 10, 15 tanks and armored vehicles a day. You, that's just unsustainable losses, not just for Ukraine, but for the, uh, Europe and the United States, for NATO. We don't produce enough of this equipment for Ukraine to be losing it on a, that, that much on a daily basis. The Ukrainians lose in a day what takes us a month, a month to produce. Uh, that's the definition of unsustainable losses. And then you, when you get into the Ukrainian casualties, oh my God, they're pushing three quarters of a million men. They're probably above that. If we take the casualties that they're already at just from this counteroffensive where it's 20,000 on the low end, Lukashenko of, of Belarus thinks it's 26,000. Putin implies that it's even higher than that. We'll just say 30,000. 30,000 casualties over the course of uh, a month and a half or I suppose almost two months now, that's insane. That's a, a terrible increase, a terrible spike in casualties when people like Conor, Conor McGregor, Scott Ritter, and even RFK Jr. were already 
putting the number of dead at 300 to 350,000 and an equal number of casualties, you know, uh, uh, well, uh, double that for casualties. You know, an equal number of wounded, I should say. So 300,000 dead, 300,000 wounded, 600,000 casualties, or 350,000 dead and 350,000 wounded, 700,000 casualties, which puts the Ukrainian casualty anywhere from 630,000 with the losses from this counteroffensive to 730,000. The, the pro-Russia side, the pro the, the Russia's going to win side of this equation is hyper-focused on the events of the war and on the what the consequences of it are going to be, except for how the war ends. Like, they bring up that the war has to end in a negotiated settlement. They bring it up because, well, Ukraine can't win. And they bring it up, they... The I, but even though they bring up the negotiated settlement, even though they bring up the need to bring the war to an end because Ukraine cannot bring it to a close by military means, and all you're going to end up doing is sacrificing Ukrainian lives by pretending that they can win the war by military means, what isn't talked about is the very real possibility that the way this war ends is that Russia just wins russia could just win no no negotiated settlement no peace deals no off ramps no nothing russia just wins by military force alone by blood alone uh, wink wink for my hearts of iron fans russia just wins and and then what because when you look at how uh, how and again going back to the underestimation of russia it, it really needs to stop People, a few months back, when we were, there were speculations, when the idea of a negotiated settlement really started to make its way into the mainstream, like the, the cable news, like, they were talking about how, oh, uh, China could negotiate the peace. China might, in, China might uh, intervene. This is before the, the counteroffensive started, back when it was supposed to be a spring counteroffensive. And the United States and Europe were afraid that the Chinese might propose a peace or that the chinese might start arming the russians and it was like um okay that's a bit strange but why do the chinese have to negotiate the peace it's like they just instinctively overwrote uh well they instinctively wrote out russia from that equation as if the russians are just incapable of doing that they they don't think that the Russians can end the war themselves because they operate on the assumption that the Russian military is incompetent and has bad logistics and it's has bad leaders. And that uh, you have Kissinger saying, Oh, the Chinese could come in and medi mediate a peace. You have people in these, uh, these intellect, these college, uh, not college, but say foreign policy Institute and uh, these war college debates saying, Oh, it's time to freeze the conflict. You have Jeffrey Sachs. We need to freeze the conflict. Okay, who's going to freeze it? Because the Russians aren't. Like, at every turn, you just have this di this disregarding of Russia. Not even, I say underestimation, and and perhaps this stems from the underestimation, but there's just disregarding of Russia as a factor in the war. It's like, we're going we're gonna to impose a peace. We're going to send in these peacekeepers into Ukraine, whether Russia... And they're just not going to tell the Russians. You remember back when we were talking about that in the episode? 
uh, not in this episode, but a few months back, when there was speculation that the UN could send peacekeepers into Ukraine, and or that the Poles could send in a a, a force into Western Ukraine, or that there would be, there'd be a coalition of the willing built up by the United States to go into Ukraine, and it's like, okay, you're going to send in these peacekeepers, but you're not going to tell the other side of the conflict that you're sending peacekeepers in. That is a terrible recipe. It's like they they just disregard the Russian presence, and it, it, everybody else. Everybody else can negotiate this peace except for the Russians, uh, and I just I just don't understand it. Either they they broke the agreements of the the grain deal, like oh we're, we're gonna get the Russians to make all these concessions to us, we're gonna say that we're gonna give them these concessions, but then we're not gonna do it, and then they're all they all have shocked Pikachu faces when the Russians pull out of the deal. Now it's a humanitarian crisis. Well, maybe you should have lived up to your end of the deal. It. It's crazy how they they play these games, and I, I, you even even with the peace deals, you they say that they would do one thing for Russia, or, and then they don't do it. And when you hear them talk about, and this is the the, the more mainstream, uh, the, the people you'll see on TV, you know, when they talk about the need to make a, a peace, what are they talking about? They they. The, the immediate thing that comes out of the pro-Ukraine side is that Ukraine needs to get all of its territory back. Uh, you see even a lot of the con- quote-unquote conservative commentators uh, saying that Ukraine needs to get all of its territory. We can't reward Putin's aggression. It's like Putin won the war. It's like they just disregard Russia as a factor in the war. Like we're going to end the war. We who backed the losing side we're going to end this war by demanding that the winning side give back all the territory that it took in the war. does that make any sense that'd be like that'd be like we america the union wins the civil war against the confederacy and in the peace talks the confederacy demands that the union surrender all of its land to the what what <laughs> what kind of a deal is that that'd be like if after the mexican american war Mexico demanded that we give them Texas back. Like, what? And California and New Mexico and everything. What? No, you lost the war. How are you going to demand for the territory that we took from you in the war when you lost? There's no common sense. And, and And perhaps that's the reason why no one even bothers to think that the very, that there's a very likely chance that this war ends in a very simple way. That there is no negotiated settlement. There is no great Ukrainian offensive that breaks through to Crimea. There is no regime change in Russia. There's just Russian victory. There is no Chinese coming in at the at the eleventh hour to negotiate a peace. There is no China bailing Russia out by sending them uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of shells and artillery and tanks. Perhaps the war ends because Russia just wins. And I, uh, again, I, I realized it. nobody was really thinking about that. Nobody was really contemplating that as a possibility. Yeah, like granted, I talk about it as, as a possibility because I, I came to the conclusion early on that I think that's how the war is going to end. But if no one's going to make this peace, uh, the Russians were willing to, but the Ukrainians initialed it and then walked away. If the peace is not going to be negotiated then russia's just going to win 
And what then? What, what happens to all this talk, all this propaganda? It all just falls apart in the face of the newly reborn rushing Goliath. And I think that that's what we're on track for. And it's, again, it becomes more likely by the day, every day that the, the West spends not making peace, not even trying to make peace with Russia, the more likely that outcome becomes. The more likely that outcome becomes. But that's enough ranting for one day. I, I do hope you've, that's all I got. That's all I've got, folks. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. We, we, history is moving fast. Uh, it's, it's moving at breakneck speed, but no matter how fast it goes, folks, we will have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Hashan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.